0: Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Let's not stand on parade, Mr. Gareth. Are you being bane this week, are you? uh no that just
1: came to me then oh okay that will be dropped <laughs> that will be dropped very quickly
0: no no no, keep it in i think that's good it's good <laughs> it's weird it's good what you've been
1: up to um i've watched dark knight uh rises or whatever it so was with, yeah with you, you basically <laughs> were being bane yeah i've um i've
0: i've not got that doesn't much. count as bat watching by the way it
1: does not count as bat watching though. No. uh <laughs> <laughs> I have seen I have been watching a kestrel this week. Oh, um, very nice. Other than that, I've I've not actually done that much. I've been quite busy. Um I have been quite busy this week. We are in we are getting ready to uh, go to Tenerife for my daughter's uh, birthday. Um so uh, uh, my my partner is from from Gran Canaria so we're not going to um, home home for them but we're kind of going to a neighbouring Tenerife is obviously a neighbouring island so the family is gonna jump on a boat and, and meet us over there so it'll be the first the time the weather's she, gonna be
0: a damn sight better than it probably is here. Ex-
1: exactly Um, she's gonna get to spend time with that sort of family but we've just been getting ready for that uh, getting organised for that and and um, so yeah just been a bit too busy had a Halloween party today that was good. Ooh, very nice. Uh, I was supposed to go as uh, the. Uh, I was supposed to go as Ghost Rider, but my skull mask and the LEDs didn't turn up in time for me to manufacture that. Uh, <laughs> so which didn't is a shame. Think of, you know, just
0: yeah, setting my just,
1: hair on fire, <laughs> setting your hair on fire. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, I didn't actually. Funnily enough, no. Um, I just went as a skull. Um, and uh, you know that I do a, a pretty good uh velociraptor from Jurassic Park impersonation. Yep. yep. I just went round with this skull mask on, screeching at the uh, kids <laughs> in the, <laughs> the Velociraptor
0: tone, terrifying them all. Yeah, fair enough. Well, <laughs> what have you been up to? Um, he doesn't know, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, I've not really had a giant amount to 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 do this week. Um, yeah, it's been, uh. Uh, Oh, actually, did find some really interesting mushrooms, um, which apparently live in a parasitic uh, lifestyle. I think they're called honey fungus. Um, I'm not very uh, knowledgeable on my mushrooms, but it's something that I've wanted to take more of a a knowledge of. Um, But this one was growing directly on the roots of I think it was either an apple or a plum tree of some sort. Just planted at the side of the road. And um, it's a sign that basically it's parasitizing the roots of that tree. So uh, that was quite cool reading up on, on that one. i got some good photos, which will be going up or should already be out by this point um, on our Facebook page. Um, I managed to get a plant that I've been looking for for a long time, which sounds really weird uh, in saying that. But um, it's uh, it's one that I saw for sale in a supermarket for a decent price, for a decent size and wanted to get. And then, of course, you go, no, 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 no. I'll be sensible. I'll do the adult thing. I'll be sensible. I won't buy it because I haven't got... Yeah, it wasn't even that expensive. It was £12. So I thought, that's £12 I could be spending on the shopping. You know, I'll be sensible. And then, uh, of course, when you come back to go and buy it, when you've actually got that money, it's gone. Mm. So I spent, a, <laughs> spent an age going to every version of that shop around the local area just when uh, on the off chance didn't have it it just disappeared and then just the other day was was in the shop uh, in a completely different shop came across it almost identical uh, size price everything and I went right well i'm not i'm not being sensible this time i'm going to be childish i'm going to buy it now so <laughs> i brought that home and um have now got uh it's a calathea ober orbifolia ob- uh, folia uh, which is they've got nice big uh, round leaves, very nice. Hmm. That that and the most important thing, or I say most important thing, watched watched the rugby world cup final the other night. You you get to talk about basketball. I'm going to talk about rugby. Um, yeah, you know my my preferred team uh, had been knocked out, um, tragically. I I would say so. I was going for New Zealand um, to, to oh, yeah. win and bloody South Africa. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I uh, you know, I can sympathize with all of those uh, New Zealand fans out there who are probably feeling the same way of that. That was kind of ripped away from them at the last minute there. You know, they could have, uh, they could have had it, but um, yeah, so there you go. There's my sports talk for this week. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, uh, yeah, I think that's about the only, only sporting thing uh, that I've come across this week.
1: Well, so, I I get to I get to talk about Lakers in the news this week. Oh, <laughs> you shoehorned well it in there. Yeah, well, for what something to do with the Lakers is relevant this week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's not delay then. Let's uh, let's head on into the news and let you uh, tell us about what the Lakers are up to. Let's do it. Okay. the news right well we're into this week's news Aaron take us out every week we're inundated with news
1: coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences and though we are but a small team we want you our fellow cupboard dwellers to be kept up to date on the good the bad and the extraordinary so let's open up our natural history cupboard reel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines and dive on in uh, and I'm up first with, uh, with an article from Mongabay Online, uh, and that headline is New Caledonia Expands Strictly Protected Coverage of Its Suave of the Pacific. Uh, this is the news that the French Overseas Territory of New Caledonia has announced its intention to expand the highly protected coverage of its economic exclusive zone. The Economic Exclusive Zone has been designated a marine protected area for over a decade, but certain industrial practices such as fishing and drilling were permitted in 97.6% of the area. Now, an expansion of the highly protected protocols will see up to 10% of New Caledonia's stretch of the Pacific rendered completely off limits to all industrial activity. A small but vital boost uh, from the 2.4% protected in previous years.
0: Nice. I've always thought New Caledonia um, should be owned by Scotland more than France, you know, (laughs) considering its name literally means New Scotland. Yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway, I I digress. Um, From Murdoch University, and that's not anything to do with Rupert Murdoch. It's uh, (laughs) (laughs) safe. We discovered three new species of marsupial. Unfortunately, they're already extinct which is what you want to hear when it comes to stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Australia is famous for its uh, diverse and unique marsupials uh, and infamous for its world-leading rate of mammalian extinctions. Definitely something that is true. But new research has added new names to this unfortunate list of Australian marsupials that are no longer with us um, and a rather grim catalogue of species driven to extinction since European colonisation. This new study um, has looked at uh, three presumably unknown species of small carnivorous mulgara. So mulgaras are basically about the size of a small, well, quite a small weasel. Um, right. And they live in dry, arid parts of inland uh, Australia in the West and the North. They're quite pretty little things look a bit like a mouse, if anything. Uh, hmm. But the species were essentially hiding in museums among specimens collected since the 19th century. Uh, none of them, uh, obviously living today. So they are ones that have unfortunately turned up in museums um, long after the point where we could have saved them. Hmm. Oh, that's a shame. Yep. Interesting information. News. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, next up from live science, newly discovered Cretaceous sea monster named after world ending Norse serpent. And I'll refrain yeah. from correcting their uh, grounding on Norse mythology there. But, uh, <laughs> Because basically, the main attraction of this article is the discovery and naming of a new mosasaur. Uh, the specimen is not 20... the fact that it's named after a Norse mythological yeah, creature. Ex- exactly. Uh, the new specimen is 27 foot long and was unearthed back in 2015, but received its first official description in the journal bulletin of the American Museum of Natural History. In summary, it's big, with massive flippers, a shark-like tail and a bony ridge resembling extremely angry eyebrows. The animal has been named Jormungandr walhallensis.
0: So, from new Scientist, sun-blocking dust from asteroid impact drove the dinosaurs to extinction. So the Cheek's impact 66 million years ago uh, filled the skies with fine silicate dust, which blocked out the sunlight and lingered for about 15 years, a new study has put forward, mm. um, which is obviously not great for plant life. Uh, it meant that this um, sun blocking effect for 15 years may have been the primary driver for the mass extinction that saw off the non-avian dinosaurs, many other species, as well that lived at the same time, according to new research. The impact ejector plumes of sulfur-based gases into the atmosphere alongside vast amounts of silicate dust um, from the impact also triggered massive wildfires around the planet and admitted soot and carbon dioxide into the air. And soon after this initial gunshot, uh, we end up with the world falling into an impact winter, which wiped out 75% of species on the planet. The researchers basically proposed that the Chicxulub mass uh, extinction was mainly governed by either sulfuric gas emissions from the soot or injections uh, into the the atmosphere or global wildfires driving this uh, this blocking out of the sun for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, uh, and they also analyzed fine grain material deposited at a site in North Dakota at the time of the impact and the team found that the diameter of the grains ranged from 0.8, uh, to 80 micrometers with an average size of about 2.8 micrometers, meaning that it's basically so fine that it, it hung in the air for an awful lot longer, um, than it should have close to 15 years. They now reckon. Wow. Not a good time. Not a good time at all.
1: A bad day in a hellish landscape. Uh, next up, from BBC online, orphaned otter given second chance by sanctuary. Uh, Dobrin the Eurasian otter, was orphaned at just 10 weeks of age. When the Mull Otter Group found him, he weighed less than a kilogram and was in dire need of help. Luckily for Dobrin, uh his luck was on the turn because uh, Mull Otter Group brought him into the International Otter Survival Fund on Sky, where he was cared for and nourished and given accommodation in a big enclosure with limited human interaction. Once strong and inquisitive, a safe location back in Mull was located away from other Otter territories, and Little Dobrun was uh, released where the Mull-Otter group continued to monitor his activity. And uh, just a kind of sweet note to close this article out on, Dobrun, which I'm probably mispronouncing,
0: is actually the Gaelic word for for Otter. Ah, that's nice. Um, From The Guardian, uh, Australia, I've got their bloody big... And enjoy an extreme <laughs> pogo dance. Um, and it's Bruce the Brolger has blessed the people of Queensland's Moreton Bay region with his presence for years. So, Brolgers are a large member of the Crane family right. uh, that live in um, well Northern Australia. This one, uh, Bruce, has been hanging around. You've you got to love the, you know, really creative name, um, <laughs> has been hanging around the Moreton Bay region with his presence noted for years. And after a recent health scare, um, he should actually continue to do so for years to come. Bruce has even been spotted patiently waiting at a local train station, although no one has yet spotted him actually on a train. According to his social media, that's right, the brolga has a social media uh, on Instagram and Facebook. He's probably got more listeners and followers than we do. Um, He's been chilling on front lawns, craning in windows, uh, and meandering through people's gardens and even into their homes, worried oh, wow. locals recently called in wildlife rescue Queensland because they'd been uh, he'd been lingering in the same spot. Um, uh, but after a quick check, he was released back into the wild uh, of suburban Moreton Bay with nothing uh, more than just a few feathers out of place. So, well, if you if you're one of our listeners and uh, you also happen to be one of His um, social media uh, followers, send us a picture of him. That would be really interesting to see a brolga wandering around someone's garden. Yeah. Not your average garden bird.
1: No. Um, And from fizz.org, bringing a shark to a knife fight. Uh, Now, admittedly, this blurs the lines of natural history and anthropology. But as animals ourselves, I would propose that our history is certainly uh, part of natural history. I think it's a good enough one to go with. I definitely think so. The intriguing headline is pretty wild. Uh, Basically, excavations in Sulawesi uh, have yielded a significant window into an interesting human-shark relationship, the collecting of teeth for us as weapons. The uh, two artifacts are 7,000 years old and utilize uh, teeth belonging to tiger sharks of all species uh, to fashion the blade. The knives stand as two of the oldest examples of shark teeth being used in composite weapons. I never knew that shark teeth were ever used in composite weapons. No, I knew that of there was a uh, there was enough of them to to
0: describe the oldest ones. Do you know what? It's one of those things that just seems such an obvious. Obvious yeah. natural item to use as a weapon. It's naturally sharp serrated. Teeth to a stick, and you've naturally got one sharp. hell of a knife. Yeah,
1: uh, it's incredible. Um,
0: oddly, wanting one actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it it kind of makes you think of it. If if they'd done it in sort of like a an arch, it almost it would almost be like a, a mini chainsaw without <laughs> the the motor whirring it around. But uh, yeah, it does seem like a very cool thing to have. Hmm. I don't know why you don't see it more often in sort of almost fantasy art or something That's, like that, you yeah, know, yeah. or in survival games and things like that. Anyway, my final one that I've got is man rescuing Britain's magical glowworms. worms. Uh, and uh, yeah. we are aware of where this article comes from, because this is connected to Derek Gow, who has been on the podcast before. Hmm. Um, the fascination of glowworms um, is for me that they are, in effect, magic," says ecologist Peter Cooper as he tramples through thistles and nettles. The glowworm has been the symbol of my otherworld love uh, and of hope and of rebirth for a, sim- a simple, for simply the greatest mystery of nature," he said. Um, basically, he's been working uh, to help increase the numbers of glowworms uh, throughout the UK. And the insect is unfortunately declining in many parts of the UK due to a host of factors from habitat loss to light pollution, which is a really serious issue for insects. Experts believe that artificial lighting is distracting the males so that they miss out on the chance to mate. The young conservationist has a passion for glowworms uh, that's second to none. Uh, He has gone to the extreme lengths to breed and release them in the south of England uh, in Hampshire. Uh, and he's doing this inside of takeaway uh, tubs that are uh, scattered around with a bit of dirt. Um, and essentially, this is where the larvae will hatch in the summer. Uh, and the young, they're only about the size of a grain of rice, uh, says the protege of the reintroduction pioneer, Derek Gow, known for his work with beavers, white storks, water voles. Um, so, yeah, we are hopefully seeing more of these fantastic little insects being bred Full release and and having seen some of these actually being bred before in in captivity it's it's a really easy process mm. um so there's real hope for those species
1: that's really cool um and it, it actually that that On that awesome uh, little article there, uh, that wraps it up for this week's uh, newsreel instalment. Remember, if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest that you think we should cover, send them on in. Uh, You can use any of the usual ways to contact us and any of the unusual ways to contact us that we've listed before. And you might see your chosen topic or news article covered here or in the main topic discussion. And with that said, I've got the uh, main topic uh, this week and that is... Quite simply, that everyone should start counting spiders. It's an article by Betsy Mason for the Knowable Magazine online, and the article starts with the author's awakening to spider mystique and intrigue, particularly jumping spiders, which she waxes lyrically over. Uh, however, it, she is quick to point out that there is a worrying decline in um in jumping spiders. A researcher that she uh that she references uh, notes just how some New Zealand species were plentiful just a couple of decades ago, and they're now nowhere to be seen. Uh, And this is a phenomenon that is actually ongoing across the globe and across differing spider families. The problem is no one knows why this silent decline is occurring. There's no hard data to prove any particular uh, threat. But there is one contributing factor, at least to the decline going widely unnoticed, that does keep rearing its head. And that is quite obviously the uh, general dislike, disgust and discomfort relating to spiders among the general public. People just don't seem to like them as the article claims. In fact, a recent study proved this when it revealed that people find spiders to be the absolute worst combination of scary and disgusting, more so than snakes, maggots and other invertebrates. This public and often very loud and popular aversion to spiders is not limited in its effect of, upon spiders just being squashed under shoes whacked with rolled up magazines or screamed at uh worryingly it also manifests in in another way and that is that scientists have difficulty procuring the funds necessary to study them uh the article points out that we can't protect species we know we know nothing about and yet some of the most endangered spider species known are relatively unknown, uh, and thus we don't know what to do about their problems. So why should you at home care about the loss of spider population numbers and spider species diversity? Well, entering the warehouse where I work will make one consequence of this problem alarmingly obvious. They are a form of natural pest control. They consume flies, mosquitoes, cockroaches, aphids, and many other uh, animals less spiders means populations of these animals go unchecked and unregulated they are um not a small influence on this uh almost every morning i have to sweep up a lot of dead flies um <laughs> we we have uh i don't know if you know of these uh, the cluster flies they are um they they come in uh, there's a couple generations of them uh and they come back to like a hereditary home. And unfortunately our warehouse is one of them. We I say unfortunately every animal has its place, but we don't have enough spiders in the warehouse to, to control Take care these animals. Of them. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of flies on the floor every morning when I get, get into work. Um as they slowly die off over winter and aren't consumed by anything. Um that being said, spiders are also an important food source in their own right. Feeding myriad birds, fish, mammals, and reptiles, whose healthy populations then go on to feed other larger species. So, if you like wildlife, consider a change of perspective towards the spider. And whilst an infinitely small number of spiders um, are actually willing uh, to bite humans and able to do us harm, they they can actually provide far more major benefits to us and our health. Compounds in the venom of spiders hold key medicinal and pest control opportunities. And the silk itself is both being looked at for medical and engineering applications, uh, including the fact that spider silk has been linked to improving or possibly even replacing Kevlar and other armor for for a long time, that's been spoken about now. Unfortunately, none of this information that I've just given you is going to change anybody's mind about spiders. But the article puts forward another method of convincing people, and that is scientific surveying. People love to count things for science, particularly the animals that they come across. And citizen science uh, projects have been ridiculously successful for birds and invertebrates. And we, we even relayed news recently of how similar counts were being used to study populations via roadkill sightings. So perhaps people actually getting actively involved in science and being aware of the presence of spiders more frequently and with a purpose Will allow people to respect appreciate and maybe even enjoy spiders in the future and this has already been proven somewhat uh because the article highlights that na- the natural history museum's fat spider fortnight um was a success i don't know if you remember that it was a project run yeah. via the iNaturalist naturalist app so it took place in 2021 the project saw an influx of uh 12 12- 1250 uh observations from hundreds of people across the uk all watching just 11 species of medium to large native spider furthermore a study undertaken by master's student bria marty tested whether learning about spiders can change how people feel about them and she found overwhelmingly that after participating in the study which required participants to identify and document spiders using the aforementioned iNaturalist naturalist app they were far less likely to react negatively upon encountering a spider and uh, um, which is it which speaks volumes and there are countless anecdotal examples of this very thing learning more about something that worries us creating a truer understanding of it significantly decreases the amount of discomfort or fear we have when encountering it as an example a personal example you would have heard me i think uh, maybe twice in the last month mentioned that since we did a wasp creature feature, my, my discomfort around wasps has significantly dropped and I'm far more tolerant of them, uh, which is a great thing for me. Um, So yeah, now the article does go on further and it is a really good read in its full self. So I, I, I I think you guys should go ahead and and read the, the actual article, but I figured I'd open it up to Gareth for us to, discuss a little and gareth the first thing that i'd like to to say is whilst i've never been um uncomfortable around spiders i'm i'm quite comfortable around them and i've i've handled many uh larger species such as tarantulas as well as the ones that we can find in our own homes i have found that mainly because of doing this podcast and and trying to be more observant of the micro beasts that i encounter daily I found that I not only have far more understanding of different spider species that I might not have had beforehand, not through discomfort, just through ignorance, but I actually really enjoy watching them now. There is I've mentioned Gwen, our um our orb weaver that sits mm. on the uh the wind the kitchen windowsill, uh, who is just a fantastic addition to the to the family because. Not only is she getting rid of all these pesky little flies that come in every now and then, uh, but she's, she's also just really, I've actually taken a managed to finally get the the phone camera, the camera phone to, uh, to actually focus on her body now, as opposed to the window behind her and get a nice photo of her. So I'm quite chuffed with that. I've mentioned about, um, miles, the, uh, the cellar spider, uh, attacking and eating a, um, a house spider in the in the downstairs toilet. Um I have I mentioned Shelob, um the one at work, a massive house spider that's at work, uh that was at work. Possibly. Yeah, she I managed I I I was very I was lucky enough where she where she'd made her nest was right in a a window between where I work and where my supervisor's office is. And so I got to observe her quite a bit. She was huge and i we managed to watch her trap things uh wrap things uh consume things and and we managed to see her brood leave the uh leave 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 her essentially and then finally um observed her in her uh in her final moments and now she's uh she's waiting for me to cast her in resin cuz uh mm. cuz it's been been that much of a uh, impactful um uh, period that uh, I felt that, uh, and she's been that um, influential on on the warehouse uh, morale that um, that I I felt that I would commemorate her permanently um, now that she's no longer with us. But yeah, I have found personally that I mean I was never frightened of them or uncomfortable of them, but I found that uh, personally observing them and really taking in what they're doing, I've actually found a, a real joy. uh uh, in in watching the spiders
0: yeah um when it comes to spiders i mean i i definitely agree that more time spent around them demystifies the idea of them as being these scary creatures that are out to get you and i can speak from definite personal experience that um over the years when when we had uh, spider talks or spider bits. In fact, you were there for most of these. Whenever yeah. we do any sort of interaction with the public with spiders, usually tarantulas, you'd have people who were spider phobia, um, you know, arachnophobics, who would come to you and go, I'm never going to touch, never going to do it, never going to do it, never going to do it. By the end of it, not only have you got them to handle a spider, and you've not forced them to because spider doesn't get injured and you know if someone flung the spider away because they were scared of it that obviously is not going to go well um because i would be more annoyed than the spider Mm. (laughs) in that situation um but yeah usually by the end of it you'd you'd have the person handling the spider and loving them and, and asking tons of questions so it is literally a case of just demystifying them they are animals that do seem to evoke this fear of odd uh, in people because a lot of people say it's the speed and the sort of re- irregularity that spiders can move with. And I can yeah. kind of under- uh, understand that um, to to a degree, but they do far more good than, than they ever do ill, you know, and the idea of them being these, these creatures that are out to get you. I, uh, I've quite often found that the more that you learn about them and, and the best way to get anyone to like a spider Is uh, And I I recommend this if you're not a a massive spider fan. The first step is type in spiders wearing water droplets as hats on Google. (laughs) And you will have a lovely time looking at these cute little baby uh, or cute little um, spiders that uh, have got little water droplets on them. And are basically wearing them like hats. I would also then recommend looking at spider paws because... They do have little cat-like paws. And when you look at them up close, they do look very little cat-like little feet, um, which makes them look quite cute. Uh, and the final one I'd say is Lucas the Spider. Uh, I'd, I'd look that one up on YouTube if, uh, if you're interested because it's a cute little animation that was done for the exact purpose of trying to uh, humanize spiders, make them more um, relatable in that sort of sense. And I, I definitely think it works. It's a nice little animation. So yeah, that would, that would be my go-to points on, uh, on those ones.
1: I, um, one thing I do want to chime in on is, is this um, concept of arachnophobia. So I, I was guilty of, of not arachnophobia, but I was guilty of misidentifying phobia uh, before my, um my zoo career started. Uh, and i had a long in depth conversation with with my uh, my first boss um about phobias and fears and the difference between them and one thing that he said which which has stayed with me to this day is that a phobia will stop you from functioning mm. and um and i do think that there's this self fulfilling prophecy of people who repetitively repetitively tell themselves and other people around them they have arachnophobia when really what they have is a fear of spiders or a a discomfort of spiders i know that arachnophobia literally means a fear of spiders but yeah phobia takes fear It's an
0: overwhelming
1: fear yeah it's 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 a it's a disabling fear Mm. um a crippling fear so um I do think that perhaps our language can change a little bit around around spiders where where necessary. Some people are genuinely arachnophobic, but I think a lot of people that tell
0: me that they're frightened of spiders, uh, they train themselves by repetitively saying it that I'm afraid of spiders. I don't like that. I don't like that. It's the same sort of almost the same mentality as a child going. I don't like broccoli. I don't like broccoli. Yeah, we have tried it. No, but I don't like broccoli. And yeah. Until they actually try it and they go, Oh, oh, actually this isn't as bad as I thought you're, it was. You're clearly speaking from personal experience there about the broccoli. No, no, I can say that my young one, he loves his veg. Oh yeah, my, trying yeah. to get him to not, my <laughs> not one, continuously like... eat things. Yeah. Um well veg wise, he'll quite happily devour stuff like that. The
1: other thing I wanted to say uh just quickly as well, is is what I just said about phobias and fears, that's not to that is not to um to not belittle but it it's not to make light, make light of your yeah. fear or make you feel like i we in some way think that if you're frightened of uh spiders you're being a wimp compared to someone with real arachnophobia fear is a fear or a discomfort is still a real feeling it's, uh, and it's physiological mm. it's so so no i don't i don't mean to to do that well, originally
0: fears are there for a very good reason it's to yeah. basically get you to not injure yourself
1: yeah it's just the imbalance of of that in our system like with any yeah. emotion an imbalance is is not healthy uh but the one thing i would say is, is even though i i'm saying that learning about these animals um exposing yourselves to these uh, what i'm trying to say is is to be careful with what we're saying I'm not saying expose yourself to spiders because if you have a fear of clowns and I stuck you in a room full of (laughs) clowns, that's not going to help you. Um, I think what I'm trying to say and what we're trying to say in this article is trying to say is expose yourself in an educational way towards spiders and build up from, from learning about them to observing them at a distance and just, and, and just taking it in what they do and appreciating them for what they are, not necessarily, Covering
0: yourselves in spiders to to try and get rid of a fear—that's not the point. And don't expose yourself to spiders. That's that's technically flashing. That's you know, it's not going to end well. And some of them have more eyes than we do, so uh, it's probably much worse to see.
1: (laughs) Uh, Before we close out on this, do you want an? uh, Shall I give you a random nerd fact about spiders? Go on then.
0: Is it going to be Spider-Man based? Is it?
1: It is. Well done. Yes. So (laughs) the scientific name for the genetically engineered orb spider uh, that was um, the the bit bit Spider-Man, the Peter Parker version of Spider-Man because the Mars Morales one is slightly different is uh, it's Araneus Oscorpius. Um, (laughs) It's a, and yeah, it's an orb spider in in the film and it's actually portrayed by um, a cupboard spider I was uh, gonna say it's
0: a false widow by the looks of it. It's a Steatoda
1: Grossa. Yeah, uh, false widow. It was just painted red and blue.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah. I was aware of what species was used in the uh, in the film. Um, mm. but I didn't know they gave it that name of uh Oscorpii. I like that.
1: Yeah, I th- I think Arenaeus Oscorpius is is it was in the film, but also I think it has a I think that actually has a as A credit anchor does it? in the comics. <laughs> what was you gonna say? <laughs> yeah, Mar- Mars, Morales is- Mars Morales's spider was something else, it's-, it's got something to do with electricity in the name. I can't remember what it is yeah. but yeah, there you go. Oh,
0: That's very cool. Spider
1: Man fact to end out on.
0: Well, shall we move on from that into this week's uh creature feature?
1: We could web swing into it, you could flip
0: Ooh. and whip, it's all in the wrist. I'll let you do that. <laughs> It's the Creature Feature. Right. Well, we're into this week's Creature Feature. Uh, This week, I'm going to put forward a creature which I consider to be cute. Now, those who know me will know that I don't often use the word cute to describe a lot of animals. I'm not a big fan of it because it quite often uh, gets overused for everything, mostly cute, fluffy things. And those who know me will know that I prefer to say cute when I'm talking about something like a a stick insect or a spider or something like that. But believe it or not, I'm actually talking about a small fluffy creature this week that I definitely think is cute. Um, I agree. (laughs) Not only does it definitely deserve to be given the moniker of being cute, but it also deserves uh, to be mentioned because it is an incredible survivor in an incredibly harsh environment, and also in facing incredibly harsh odds. So, this week we are talking about a marsupial um, that I've managed to get within at least 20, 30 centimetres of. However, I've never actually seen. I've got within so close a distance of this thing, but I, and I knew it was there, just could not see it. You could hear uh, it, yeah? Uh, No, couldn't hear it. Oh, right, Um, okay. (laughs) It's also one of the most endangered animals on the planet. Uh, It's also one of the most unheard of animals on the planet as well, outside of its native Australia. So what is this animal that I'm talking about? It is, in fact, the numbat. Not a wombat. This is a numbat. And, in fact, with timing this to the T, we have managed to get it so that this episode about the Numbat will come out on International Numbat Day. So how's that for a bit of fortuitous timing for us there? It's almost like we planned it. I know, it's weird. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's almost like we planned it and remembered to plan it properly. <laughs> Not completely <laughs> did it by accident. So what is this fantastic little creature? If I was to say Numbat to most people, they probably wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. Well, the Numbat is a small marsupial it's between uh, 35 and 40 centimeters long. that includes their tail. They have a pointy little uh, muzzle, prominent bushy tail that looks a bit like a bottle brush uh, that you'd use to obviously clean inside of bottles. so it yeah, it's, um, it's long and thin and is basically covered in this nice gray fur. The rest of their body has quite a few different colors up and down it. Now a good chunk of their body is a lovely orange color it has stripes across its bum and its back end that are black um, with some occasional bits of white fading into it as well. So the same sort of stripes, uh, striped rear end that the Tasmanian tiger had. Um, They do look a little bit similar, actually. Yeah, yeah. They've got sort of characteristics that are are slightly similar. So that orange goes into a gray of then onto the rest of their tail. But there are sort of flecks of orange coming through it. Uh, The head is predominantly grey with a white circle around their eye and then a lovely black line that runs from the base of their ear right the way down through this circle. So their sort of eye itself is encompassed in this lovely black line uh, that goes right the way down to the tip of their nose. They They are are
1: a really remarkable-looking animal.
0: They're really pretty. To give you an idea of, of basic sort of size, you could, I suppose... Compare them to a meerkat in size and shape, body-wise, I suppose. Except the Numbat's got a much bushier tail, longer, thinner, pointier features as well, as opposed to a meerkat, which is a bit more round. Totally unrelated, but to give you an idea of basic body shape. They are a truly stunning-looking marsupial and a real one-of-a-kind as well. And I don't just say that to be uh, hyperbolic. They are the only member of their family to exist. So they sit completely alone within all of the other carnivorous marsupials. That's the Daziroidomorphia, um, which is the same group that includes the Tasmanian tiger, uh, mm-hmm. the quolls, the Dunnarts, yep. and fuscigales, two groups which I absolutely love, as well as the Mulgaras, which we mentioned in the news. And of course, the most famous member of this particular group uh, is the Tasmanian devil, which we talked about just a couple of weeks ago in our Halloween episode. And even though they're in this family of the carnivorous marsupials, which all have quite decent sized, strong teeth, well, this one doesn't. It diverged from the rest of its family about 32 to 42 million years ago during the late Eocene period. Uh, And it specialized into a rather interesting diet, uh, which we will get to in just a minute. Now, at one point, there was in fact two subspecies of Numbats, but these have since become extinct with Europeans turning up in Australia and bringing a whole host of uh, other animals that have done them no end of harm. Uh, So we're just left with the one singular uh, subspecies or species of Numbat. So what's in a name? Numbats get their name from Aboriginal languages, which I'll get onto in just a second, but the Numbat's uh, scientific name is Myrmacobius fasciatus, which uh, is another one of these ones that I did take a lovely deep dive into its meaning. Murmoco- or, or uh basically means living off ants. Anything with murmur in it means ant and the fasciatus part basically means striped. So it's the one that is striped and lives off ants. So, It's a fairly good description of this animal. It is stripy and it eats ant-like creatures. Uh, It's not quite 100% because um, the name itself doesn't completely describe 100% of the truth of what these guys do. And yet again, it'll come back to their diet, which we'll get to in just a second. But the name Numbat uh, comes from the York uh, and two-day districts. Uh, people of eastern Perth. Um, These were the Aboriginal people who lived in these areas. It was also known as the Woolperty, uh, used by um, various different desert language groups of Aborigines in Western Australia and Southern Australia, and even as far up into the Northern Territories. So they've had a variety of different names. Numbat seems to be the one that has stuck. Personally, quite like both of them uh, as names for these guys. Because it was described as being an ant-eating species and there's a similar style to anteaters, eaters um, it was known at one point uh, originally as the banded anteater, which obviously is not a particularly created name. In fact, we see this all over the world. In fact, the echidna gets called the spiny anteater. Pangolins get called the scaly anteater. I mean, basically, there is only three species of anteater, all of which that live in the the Americas and are not even re- remotely related to these guys or anything else. Get more creative with your naming, people. Um, these are not related in the slightest, and it's not a good name for them. In fact, they don't actually even eat ants. So their name isn't even 100% accurate either. Were you aware of that, Aaron? I wasn't aware that it, it wasn't on their diet at all. Mm. They do occasionally eat them just by pure accident, but do you know hmm. what their main diet is made up of? Um, I actually don't know. I don't know mm. what their main diet is. They're, they don't actually eat ants. Uh, they, well, they live almost exclusively off termites. Um, anywhere between five or six different genera are on the menu for these guys of, of termite right the way throughout um, Australia. There are loads of different species of termite. Now, the ones that these guys tend to encounter are not what we tend to think of when we think of termites in termite colonies. Most termites throughout Southern and Western Australia, at least the, the, the inland areas are not the massive termite man's. They're actually, they're more like if you'd half buried a football in the ground and just sort of mounded oh, right, over yeah. it with a bit of mud, they don't look particularly impressive and you wouldn't notice them most of the time. They're, they're um, but they are definitely there and these guys consume anywhere up to twenty thousand termites a day now they do like say occasionally eat the odd ant and they know that by well somebody has actually gone through and and checked their uh, their droppings looking for individual exuvia of of different insects so uh, that cool. sounds like a, a very cool but somewhat thankless job that I'd imagine some university student was doing when it comes to the how they get a hold of their food they have nice Sharp little claws on their front feet, which they will help, uh, which will help them to break into termite nests and into logs. Um, They can't break into the hardened uh, termite nests that would uh, basically set rock hard from the Australian sun. So it's got to be slightly damaged, or there's got to be slightly softer soil for them to be able to get into. So, usually, only the top galleries of a termite nest they'll be able to get into then they will stick their massively long tongue in to be able to get get to the uh, the termites on the inside. Their tongue uh, is about 10 to 11 centimeters. So that's basically a third the length of the animal. Yeah, that's, um, that's big. Yeah, if you've ever seen these guys yawning, and I highly recommend looking up a YouTube video of a numbat yawning, it is, it's quite a cute little... Uh, look, because their tongue just sticks right out and sort of curls round. Hmm. An impressive, impressive tongue. It's coated in uh, in like a sticky saliva that helps to pick up the uh, the termites out of the crevices that they'll be hiding in. And like I say, even though these guys are in the same group of carnivorous marsupials that Tasmanian devils are in and have the highest bite force of any a- animals of- per their size, these guys. Hmm. Um, well, they've got rather weak peg-like teeth because obviously they don't need to do much crushing and uh, chomping of through through things with termites. They're more peg-like um, and they're basically over generations have got smaller and smaller. They don't
1: need- Presumably they- like- Sorry, mate. I was just going to say, presumably that's for grinding the chitin.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's about the mm. worst they have to deal with, really. Um, they do have canines. They do have- Teeth and they have slight ridges and that to them, but hmm. they're nowhere near as as prominent as you'd expect in in an animal that spends its life eating termites. So yeah, they don't really have to work uh, to do much in the way of chewing. Where do these guys live? When we say Australia, I mean Australia is a massive place. It is absolutely gigantic, but the habitat that you'll find these guys living in is um, well, it's greatly changed. Now, Aaron, I sent you two pictures, two maps of Australia, uh, and you should have both of them in front of you. The first one uh, that you will be able to see um, is, in fact, its historical range. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that, yeah, the historical range, yeah. So the historical range of these guys, the Numbats uh, range, actually arched right the way from basically the coast of Western Australia up mm. and right the way down into South Australia, whilst taking in a little bit of, of Northern Australia. And in fact, at their furthest point, they even went into New South Wales. So imagine almost a boomerang shape across from Western Australia down uh, into South Australia. And the areas where we're looking at for things like this is everything from Mali scrub, which is uh, open, dry forests, right the way through to harsh inland deserts and sort of sand dune areas, right the way into open grasslands as well. So a wide variety of habitats that these guys used to live in.
1: Mm. Now,
0: on your map, you will see that, um, well, the orange, uh, which is a good half of the, the map on the South Australian side. Mm. This is great radio, uh, great podcasting I <laughs> Their range disappeared. Their range disappeared from uh, a good chunk of South Australia uh, between 1800 and 1910. And then the, well, the big, massive left-hand chunk, which is most of Western Australia, became extinct uh, during 1910 to 1930. Uh, and then the final chunk, which are two small blue circles that are put inside of one of those areas. Uh, In Western Australia. So one quite close to Perth and then one right up on the border with South Australia. They disappeared between 1930 and 1960. Now, if you'd like to refer to your second map that I gave you, Aaron, which has two tiny little dots.
1: It does. May may I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Because you are more familiar with Australia than I am. On the map, uh, just for our our viewers, um, our viewers, so our listeners, <laughs> uh, as Gareth stated, it, it, it is like a chunky, somewhat melted boomerang shape. Yeah,
0: you wouldn't be throwing so, it very far.
1: Interestingly, underneath what would be the arch of the boomerang, mm-hmm. there's a space that indicates that it doesn't seem like they were ever there, and it's a very small sliver between two territories i was just wondering what is in that area that may have stopped them from spreading in there
0: i'm not sure actually because i wasn't a hundred percent aware of their historical range but Mm. it may be a case that that little bit that runs along the coast of part of the great australian bite it might just be that they've never found evidence of them there right so they could be be there they might have been there at some point yeah that it does no, make sense. I just wondered if there was something
1: there or
0: not. They're certainly not there anymore. Now, the second mm. map that I've given you has yeah, got a very a lovely big pa- uh, picture of Australia with two tiny dots. In fact, there's actually mm. three. Um, yeah, there's there two in the the box that. In fact, is so small that there has to be a box to point out where the dots are. So there's one box that sits. Directly over where Perth is um, on the, the bottom of Western Australia, there's two yeah. dots in that box, and then the other one sits in South Australia, uh, right out in the Mallee scrub. That is mm-hmm. the entirety of this animal's range now. It's uh,
1: it's to say it's <laughs> to say it's shrunk is a um <laughs> bit of an understatement. understatement. Yeah, yeah to it's, go from it, that's actually really really a, a heartbreaking if anything these these infographics are reason enough for us to uh, make videos of our podcasts because
0: it it it's actually astounding how much that that's yeah. just awful it's the equivalent uh, the space that that um that they originally had i think would probably fill the entirety of western australia if you were to sort of bunch it all together mm. and Western Australia is the entire Western half of that continent um, Yeah. to reduce that down to two sites that are probably smaller than one city is, well, it's shocking. It's, it's a ridiculously tiny amount of land and we're going to get onto their conservation um, uh, in a bit. They're now distributed in just two, uh, sorry, in two or three locations, two outside of Perth and one in southern Australia. Uh, mm. And today they're, they're only found in these these two or three uh, forests, which are actually heavily fenced off to make sure that predators can't get to them. That should give you a clue as to the issues that these guys face. Before we get to the the sad part, we're going to go back in time a little bit. Obviously, the Numbat has been known to the various different Aboriginal peoples who've lived alongside it for thousands of years. Mm. Um, It was just part of the various different flora and fauna that they would have encountered throughout that massive range. But the first description we get from European explorers comes in 1831, and it was discovered by an exploration party uh, during an exploration of the Avon Valley uh, under the leadership of Robert Dale, Uh, and George Fletcher Moore, who were two naturalists who were part of the group. George Fletcher Moore uh, is the one who actually drew the very first picture that we have of a Numbat. It's an ink sketch, like a really, really basic sketch, like almost like a doodle you'd expect in the bottom of a, a school notebook. Yeah,
1: it looks like a really pixelated... You know what that reminds me of? If you had Numbats in the original Pokemon Red
0: and Blue games, (laughs) <laughs> what like a sprite uh yes for, for something like that. it That's is right. it is so it's almost like a last minute thought that somebody's just etched down but um george fletcher moore drew this first picture in his diary on the 22nd of september uh, 1831 and he recounted his discovery in two brief passages which they're actually quite nice little passages saw a beautiful animal today but as it escaped into the hollow of a tree, could not ascertain whether it was a species of squirrel, weasel, or wildcat. The following day, uh, he put, chased another little animal, such as had escaped us yesterday, into the hollow of a tree. We captured it. From the length of its tongue and other circumstances, we conjectured that it is an anteater. Its color, yellowish, barred with black and white streaks across the hinder part of its back. Its length is about 12 inches so a nice little description of them presumably catching uh, a a number and drawing a rather low detailed sketch of the animal um mm. which uh, i actually when i saw it initially when i was uh, looking for the research for this i actually thought that picture was going to be some aboriginal rock art it yeah. was just a, a photo of an aboriginal rock art but no it's it's in fact not a pictogram of someone drawing it thousands of years ago, it's it's someone drawing it the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> so thankfully, a little bit later on, um, the numbat was actually included in the first part of John Gould's The Mammals of Australia, issued in 1841, with a plate uh, illustrating the species in a lot better detail. It's quite a nice little watercolour of uh, this species. We get to the conservation part of this animal. Now, at the time of European colonization, the Numbat was spread right across uh, most of uh, Western, Central, and Southern Australia, even as far as New South Wales and Victoria, and right up into the Northern Territory. It was found in a huge range of different habitats, from woodland, semi-arid habitats, right the way into uh, open, sandy deserts. However, with the deliberate release of European red foxes in the 19th century, uh, it's presumed that most of them have been wiped out in parts of uh, Victoria, New South Wales, the Northern Territory, because, well, they were easy prey. And almost all of the numbats in Western Australia by the late 1970s would, had been wiped out by foxes, cats, dogs, the mm. multitude of animals that we have decided to let loose into Australia and cause havoc in the ecosystem. And in fact, the population was well under a 1,000 animals um, concentrated in just the two small areas not far from Perth. And an in, initial efforts to conserve them from extinction um, all happened in Western Australia with these two small populations able to survive because of both, both areas having hollow logs that may have actually served as a refuge from predators. And in fact, the one thing that I didn't point out is they are almost completely diurnal. They spend most of their time of a night asleep and most of the time during the day looking for food. Yeah, which is quite rare for marsupials. It is. And unfortunately, that makes them more vulnerable to predation yeah. um, than most other marsupials. Its size as well means that it's easy prey for quite a few different native predators like birds of prey, uh, pythons and monitor lizards. But also means that uh, foxes and cats will most likely have a go at it as well. And when the Western Australian government instituted an er- experimental program of fox baiting uh, at one of these uh, sites, uh, the numbat sightings increased by a factor of 40. So instant numbers uh, increasing because, well, the predators were being <laughs> managed. Uh, and intensive research and in conservation programs since 1980, have successfully increased the numbat population uh, and substantially reduced the fox population in these areas as well. Mm. Now, Perth Zoo has worked closely to obviously breed these animals, and they are kept in quite a few collections around Australia, basically for release into these wild uh, managed areas. Despite that, encouraging um, so despite the encouraging degree of success, the numbat still remains uh, a critically... Uh, endangered species Um, and since 2006 it's it's had various different projects going on to to basically help save the species and and maintain its numbers there's everything from fundraising and obviously raising awareness international numbat day is a good way of doing that um through uh well getting the 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 word out there that this species even exists there's probably quite a few people who live in australia who wouldn't even know what a numbat is because just like with most modern countries, a lot of people are quite removed from the animals that are around them. And uh, numbats being rare already uh, would be quite hard to uh, to notice. So they almost need the same sort of popularity campaign that the bilby got when it came to uh, being the way to replace the the Easter bunny with the Easter bilby. So maybe we should have the, the Halloween numbat or something like yeah. that. I don't know. But Numbats have also been successfully reintroduced into lots of different areas in their former range in basically predator proof um, sanctuaries. And that's where we get to the point where I was actually able to get quite close to one, but not able to see it. Um, years ago, as part of a, a high school trip, actually, um, we went uh, used to go out to a place called Yukamara Sanctuary out in the Mallee mm-hmm. Scrub and this was a predator free fenced off area that was perfect for release of things like bilbies we got to do releasing of some bilbies out there along with uh, going and tracking numbats and we went to one of these areas where they where they were one of the rangers who was there took our group out and um we radio tracked them right down to a log that was sat right in front of us and the numbat was in there. The you know, the radio caller was telling us it was right, right there yeah, in front yeah. of us. Just it obviously heard our our <laughs> party of high school students coming and thought, nah, I'm hiding, getting away from that. Yeah, I'm getting getting out of the way of that. Yeah. But yeah, I can I can thankfully say I've been within about 30 centimeters of one of the most endangered animals on the planet. Also one of the, the cutest animals on the planet. So I would encourage anyone and everyone to look up what a numbat looks like. Watch a video of them yawning uh, and enjoy the (laughs) absolute spectacle that is one of the cutest and most unheard of uh, little marsupials out there. I think they're, I know we did koalas and we've done Tasmanian devils and things like that, but I think they're cooler than all of those personally. Um, They're just that, there's something about them. They're just absolutely lovely.
1: They are, um, they are pretty, pretty incredible animals. Um, Yeah. I've seen a couple of videos uh with them in and I always always strikes me how uh, how beautiful they are and and
0: I, I also find that they're quite busy little animals yeah yeah they're quite dainty and we didn't even really get on to their breeding um they don't just well just like uh, when we were talking about Tasmanian devils they actually don't have a pouch as such uh they still have those same four nipples that the Tasmanian devil does and most of their babies are held in in fact without a pouch but they're held in with stiff bristle like fur on the mother's stomach that sort of keeps the babies tucked up against their body until they're old enough to be deposited in a burrow somewhere so uh yeah they they're a fantastic little animal there's so much more that i could have gone on about these guys but it's been a good good uh, few weeks for australian fauna yeah we really have in fact some and of the ones flora some of the ones that we've got coming up actually i'd say that we're uh we're certainly stuck in the antipodes which is not a bad mm. place to be stuck i it's actually not- have on my
1: list of animals i don't think it's for this year i think it's for early next year but i'll have to double check but my list of animals includes one of uh one of the um
0: numbat's predators oh mm. interesting well there's a there's a there's a teaser for you <laughs> it's not the red mm. fox we've done the red fox no so, let's, um, shall we take ourselves out of the Mallee scrub now and head into our mailbag for this week? Just us the... Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into our emails for this week. So, we'll start things off with our question from last week. Uh, and that was, which animal with a negative image would you want to see made more positive? And you know what? I'm glad we got a lot of responses on this one because... Yeah, there are so many animals that definitely deserve the uh, the treatment of being made far more positive, and far too many of them certainly don't get uh, the credit that they deserve. So we've got from Urban Fox Art and Photography the fox. Too many people don't like them, and they are beautiful. Very true. Yeah, they are I agree. Animal fox uh, would have been half. in
1: my five five species. If I listed five species, foxes
0: would have been in there. I don't even, th- I, I wouldn't have even included them because I have two more of a, a higher, you know, I, I I don't see them in any way as a, a negative animal. I don't know. Um, uh, locally, locally, especially yeah, yeah, where yeah. I
1: live, um, you
0: certainly come across fox haters. This is true. Uh, my other half has put rats. I mean, yes, I both yeah. love and hate rats in some ways because... Oh, that's another good answer. As someone who's who's worked with birds... Wild rats getting into Avery's, they can do an awful lot of damage. Pet rats, though, they're a totally, totally amazing little creature and are nothing like their, their wild counterparts. But even then, wild rats are fascinating creatures in themselves. They are adaptable and everything. So it's it's one of those animals that they're so good at what they do that they make people annoyed, I think. They fall almost into the same category as like herring gulls and, and stuff like that uh hmm. becky walker has put uh sharks and vultures two animals that uh do a very yeah. very important job um
1: there's another another two in my in my f- list of five yeah
0: yeah sharks uh we've also got from elizabeth ravenscroft uh as well tani barnes has put snakes and spiders and in her, her part of the world i'd imagine they've got some they've got some funky ones in uh that part of queensland so uh yeah, they get a bad name a lot of the time. Tracy Dove has put herring gulls. Like I say, they're so they're so good at what they do that people get annoyed by them, I think. I think some people get jealous by their level of intelligence as well. There are certainly some gulls that are smarter than people, I would say. Carissa uh, Miller has put leopard slugs. Don't know how anyone could hate leopard slugs. They're gorgeous things. But yeah, they are a pain if they get onto your, uh, your vegetables. Jen Babs will be one that you'll like. Erin, uh, she's put wasps. It's yeah, your, yeah, I agree with that it's one. It's your one animal that you're not particularly keen on. Yeah. Um, and
1: like like I say, I've warmed to them since uh, the creature feature we did. Yeah.
0: Uh, Catherine Ames has said, what they said, rats and pigeons. Mm. <laughs> so uh, another vote for those ones there. Pigeons, I don't think, deserve any bad um, reputation whatsoever. Phil Barber has put cockroaches, wasps, spiders, snakes, and piranha. Piranha are one of those things that just I don't get why people get that wound up about them because yeah, they are there's so, there's so many misconceptions, which the is the reputation is all myth. Yeah. Um so in fact, coming off that, we've had Tamzin Anya Lidu has put Phil, uh, how the Piranha misconceptions still live on will never cease to amaze me. Phil has then replied saying some, uh, same here. The one that really gets me is when parents tell their kids that piranhas will bite their willy off. I mean, (laughs) what are you doing in his fish tanks? Get out of his fish (laughs) 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 tanks. To which she's then replied, uh, used to get it in experiences where we'd had a piranha tank. Parents would ask if I put my hand in there, would they eat the whole thing? Or they'd tell their kids, don't put your hand in there. uh, They'll eat all your fingers off. So, (laughs) Um, I'll come back to that, actually, at the end, because there was a point I wanted to make. She's uh, uh, Tamsin has, has also put uh, crocodile spiders, um, which is getting there, and cockroaches. Uh, so two votes for cockroaches. And she said, I'd also like to agree with everyone who's said wasps. Renee uh, Stover has put bats, snakes, and insects. Charlie Bird has put sharks and vultures. And Josie Harrison has put spiders and cockroaches. So uh, I think a lot of these, it's misconceptions that just yeah. seemed to perpetuate throughout popular culture. In fact, the other day I was rewatching with, with my other half. We were watching Grey's Anatomy and I called it from the instant on, on the episode. They, they started going on about um, someone had been swimming in the Amazon and he oh, had no, now massive pain in, in and around his bladder and everything. And um, they, they basically say it's a kangaroo And now if you've, listen to our very first episode you'll know that it's not possible for a kangaroo to do the things that it is said to do based that's, on all uh, these myths that's and a callback isn't it well yeah that's that's about as callback as you can go the original creature feature <laughs> when it comes to that as well it 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 doesn't help that popular media and gray's anatomy is one of those ones that is very popular where you'll then get people basing their entire um medical knowledge on uh, what they see on there and you know those facts then perpetuate or those myths then perpetuate and and get worse and worse so mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't really help it also didn't really help that when they showed this thing in the sort of surgery scene they pulled out something that was much much larger than a kangaroo could physically be and you go <laughs> well, okay f- just despite the fact that this is somehow gone against the whole fluid dynamics thing of swimming up a stream of urine how on earth has it managed to lodge itself in there? Because that does not look like it's getting in there without you noticing.
1: <laughs> well, the, the the victim was 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 uh, was was drugged, and whilst out, someone surgically implanted. <laughs> surgically implanted. Ah, in the bladder. Yes. That is yes, that's that's how that happened. I've got a question for you, Gareth. Yeah, okay, is there is there any species on that list? No, any species that you think is relevant to that question but hasn't been listed by our listeners, because I've got one. That I thought someone would mention. Uh, maybe mice. I suppose mice. A Fair bit enough.
0: Benign compared to rats, really. People tend to yeah. to hate on rats more than they do on on mice. Yeah, mice are seen as sort of the slightly cute little thing if you get them in the house. So you just catch the, them up. Yeah, them outside.
1: The, the cute version of the rat. Yeah. yeah. You
0: know, what what have you
1: got then? um this may surprise you and you won't agree with me straight away but hear me out i i was going to Oh, bats. Like, the one that i was expecting bats should to be hear on there was, Bats should be on there yeah the one that i was going to go with those wolves uh, um yeah. and there's t- it, the, the wolves are unique in this list because all all the species that you without without going through an extensive list and making a decision from there i can almost i can almost guarantee rather presumptuously that every species on this is negatively affected by a negative misrepresentation. I see. Negative reputation. Wolves are unique uh, in this group because they are very much a victim of this, um, of species shaming and being being the brunt of a, a very, very uneducated and misinformed negative reputation but they're also victims that the sword swings both ways Mm. they're victims of a very misguided very uneducated very misinformed positive reputation and both i would argue are equally detrimental to that species
0: survival yeah no that's very true actually um yeah hmm some really good answers there um, yeah, I think and, so. Uh, yeah, some really good, really good approaches as to where people's thinking. So, our question for you for this week is going to base uh, is is based on um, finding of well, two new species actually, I suppose, or one one old, one new um, mm. uh, that we had in the news. Uh, the uh, the flower that was found uh, by the roadside in Africa, and hmm. the uh, the new species of pangolin that's been found. So, the question uh, for you this week is what animal would you want to see have a new species discovered in its family to uh, to be added to the, the animal tree, one that's been out there this entire time, or maybe it's a cryptid that you've uh, you've been wanting to, to uh, have proved correct. Aaron, what, what would be your one that you'd want to have roaming around? In fact, uh, I'm going I'm to take a guess. Is it gone. going to be a species of, of Island tiger? That I tell you what, that would be
1: really cool to have the Javan tiger, for example, be rediscovered. Mm. However, that probably more than that, just just uh, yeah. I, I mean, Javan tiger is a good one. Now that you've now that you mentioned that, that's kind of <laughs> I'm gonna have to rethink this. But my my gut my gut instinct was actually uh stuck between um was actually stuck between like it sasquatch whether that's bigfoot or a yeti and um as part of the you know the great apes kind of uh, uh, group i would like to wake up tomorrow and find out that there is a fourth species of elephant actually
0: oh that'd be that'd be interesting yeah that'd That'd be be really
1: cool cool, i think an environmental ecological engineer in its own right um Mm. yeah i think yeah and i mean don't forget we had elephants in uh, in this country we had I think I mean, we would have probably the,
0: noticed if there was one the, in this country the <laughs> dwarf
1: elephant in in sicily yeah. um there's there's you know that's a that's a huge 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 family uh, it would be um it'd be interesting just, it to find be cool. one yeah it would be cool yeah hmm.
0: okay i mean i'm going to i'm i'm going to go with more of a, a paleo theme on this Because there's a number of animals I'd love to see rediscovered. There's there's two that that feature highly on my list. Uh, And there are two that I've actually covered as creature features. One would be the stellar sea cow, to see that right, basically rediscovered that it's actually been there this entire time and we've just not noticed. Uh, Probably the the more impressive one I say impressive, it would be impressive to find a stellar sea cow. Um, The more one that speaks to me would be the the thylacine Um, uh i see i thought you're gonna say thylacine
1: originally yeah
0: it'd be technically the the one that's most likely out of all of them you know there's always the thought and i'd heard all these sort of rumors and all sorts of things of supposedly mainland ones and people Mm -hmm. keeping them secret and everything i'd love tomorrow to find to like you say wake up tomorrow and find out yeah no they're they're still there we've we've found one in this little pocket in the wilderness somewhere and yeah so that that would be a, a quite a a good one to to have uh, a mm. new species discovered of or and totally yeah rediscovered so that is our question for you this week dear listeners is um what animal would you like to see a new species of discovered or rediscovered uh in the case of something like a paleo uh rediscovery so you can uh, you can answer that on our facebook page where that will be going up throughout the week and you can also get in contact with us well as well through our email uh which is the nat history covered at gmail.com uh, where we will take in any and all uh, inquiries and requests although don't request us to sing because that would be be off-putting for everyone i think <laughs> so we now come to the uh, the part of the show where I get to talk about the many ways that, that you can help us out. The first of these is to basically, well, listen to the show, uh, tell people about it. Um, that helps out immensely. Uh, it's really uh, a fantastic way of obviously getting the word out of what we're doing here. Another way uh, is what these wonderful folks uh, have done, which is supporting us on Patreon. Patreon. By doing that, you help us out and make the show bigger and better. We've got many things in the works, in the wings, as it were, to try and make the show bigger and better. The uh, the patrons that we want to thank, um, Aaron, take it away. Well, I've watched, uh, I've
1: watched a few Spider-Man films this week, so uh, there's going to be a bit of a theme to this one. So we'll okay. kick it off. You know, I guess one Chelsea McKee really can make a difference. We'll meet again, Connie P. There is no Jen Greenhall. <laughs> Now there is only Jennifer Greenhall. The power of the sun in the palm of Frogtober's hands.
0: Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to keep that up now. You're going to have to do that for every single one. A different theme each each week. Yep. Yep. So expect that. That'll be an interesting (laughs) one for Aaron to try and cobble together every week. Um, And if you want to make his job even more stressful, uh, add yourself to the Patreon list and... uh, We'll see how many more of these he can come up with. If we Um, can get
1: 10 Patreons by my birthday in January, then I will wrap the Patreon. Oh, my God. I'm not even sure I want
0: that to happen. (laughs) But money isn't everything. Uh, And you can help us out in the simplest way by liking, subscribing, and leaving us a review on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on. Uh, Tell a friend, tell an enemy. Um, but both these ways really help us out in uh, making the podcast uh, grow. And uh, ever since we've been asking you guys to do these things, the podcast has really taken off uh, a lot more and a big thank you for myself and Aaron in helping the podcast to grow and continue. Um, you haven't all abandoned us uh, yet. So uh, we must be doing something right. So a big thank you for myself and Aaron.
1: Yeah. Mm. Thank you very
0: much. And that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's episode, Aaron. Um so a big thank you for coming along yourself yeah you're very welcome thank you for having me it's been a pleasure it's yeah it's always nice and a big thank you to you at home for listening and we'll see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye
1: bye